Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. This week on the Garden DC podcast, we're joined by Lisa Mason Ziegler of the Gardener's Workshop Farm, and she's based in southeastern Virginia. Welcome, Lisa. Hey, thanks for having me, Kathy. Great to have you. And we were just reminiscing before we hit record about the last time we saw each other, (laughs) and that was at a post-GardenCom conference airport um, conversation that we ran into each other after uh, we had a lovely conference in Salt Lake City. Yeah, that was, I mean, gosh, it seems like eons ago, doesn't it? I know. It seems like, alternatively, that it was just yesterday. Right. <laughs> and then then the other way direction, that it seems like it could have been 10 or 20 years ago that we were sitting there together in person. So. Without masks, without masks. Exactly, without masks. And people, I remember, were cheek by jowl in that airport waiting area, and we were laughing up a storm, is what I recall, (laughs) as garden writers do when they run into each other in the real world. It was really good. Yeah, it was great catching up, and hopefully we'll have a great catching up today. Uh, First, I wanted to have you let our listeners know a little bit about what the Gardener's Workshop Farm is. And that's an interesting name, actually, because it's a workshop farm. You know, it is a very interesting name. Funny you should say that. But so I began um, my career, I guess you would call it back in 98, 1998, I began growing cut flowers um, commercially for sale. And back then, my business was actually called Ziegler Garden. And um, kind of it just took off from the get-go, which was very surprising. No one more surprised than me. I live in the middle of the city. I was a very novice gardener that just happened to read the, a book about flower farming, not even knowing that that was like a career choice, and just basically followed what the book told me to do. And um, my little urban flower farm just really took off from the get-go. And Not long after that, I started getting requests from lots of garden clubs and master gardener groups to to come and talk to them about what it was I was doing, because I was really, we're not in farm country, you know, I'm in southeastern Virginia, and um, being in the city, I was really a novelty, and so I really got a lot of um, invitations to come and talk and found a couple of things um, to be true for me. First, I feel like Perhaps my strongest gift is teaching and helping other people to kind of garden successfully. And the other thing was, is that I tend to um, get down to the black and white of things. I kind of just tell you how it is and how to do it. And um, that's how I learned. And that's kind of what I communicate. And that just kind of struck a whole new path for my career So I started speaking and teaching in addition to flower farming, soon after launched an online garden store of the seeds, tools, and supplies that I used because when you start teaching people, then they want the stuff that you actually do it with. And that just kind of opened a whole lot of very interesting doors. Um, And my business has continued to grow through the years. Um, I've authored two books Vegetables Love Flowers and Cool Flowers, and I now also publish and create online courses and have a podcast field and garden as well as a blog, and it's all over on our website, thegardenersworkshop.com, and it's just kind of mushroomed, really, Kathy. Hmm. (laughs) Sitting and thinking about it, it's like, oh my goodness. (laughs) Yeah, it's been quite the evolution and I love what you said that you keep it real basically you don't you don't hide the the dust or the dirt under the fingernails um, of what you do 
And, you know, that is really, really true. I mean, sometimes I think that makes people just understand that everybody, even though it may look really um, pretty beautiful on social media at times, you know, they'll see beautiful images of my farm or, um, you know, just buckets and buckets of flowers and just think it's all rainbows and unicorns around here. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. And we actually are just now launching. I have a, um, we're going to have a live stream and camera of our garden on YouTube. It'll actually be available on our website. And it's really kind of frightening. I mean, literally, it is now up in operation. It's not live yet to the public, but it's bringing my exposure of really sharing everything I do, the weeds, the mistakes, the failures. Um, oh my goodness, just all the good as well as the struggles and the challenges. And this camera is bringing it really, <laughs> really where the rubber meets the road, right? So um, yeah. So that's kind of my thing, I guess. Hmm. That'd be really cool to watch and then to have that record for you too. And I can imagine that from year to year, it will be so different, you know, from the weather or what insect pests you get or what weed seeds pop up uh, to document that. Yeah, it's there's going to be a lot of interesting um developments, I think, with that. So that's just one more of many ways. But yeah, I try to really, um, I mean, that's kind of the way that I learn best is, you know, I, I don't need the fluff. Just tell me what it is you're supposed to do and what to expect, and I'll do my best to do that. And um, that's kind of what I have communicated, and it has served us really, really well. And I like the way you talk about the non-glamorous side of cut flower farming, because there is, I think, out there that retirement dream or that second career dream of playing with flowers and growing them and that, yeah, it's all rainbows and unicorns, but it is essentially farming and you're a slave to the weather, first of all, and um, it's tough work. So I wanted to have you talk a little bit about how you started when you first picked up that uh, flower farming book. Do you remember who wrote it or what the title was? Oh, sure. It's um, Lynn Bozinski. She, um, I mean, I would be willing to say that 90% of the commercial flower farmers that you would ever meet, if you say, how did you get started? They'll all say Lynn's book. Huh. Um, it's called The Flower Farmer. That's the name of the book. And it was published first in 19... I think it was early 1998. It's since then has um, a new edition that now it has color pictures. Back when I read it, it was um, not color at all. Um, and it just really introduced you to it. And I literally, being the rule follower that I am, I did every single thing that Lynn said to do in that book. I mean, literally, from stalking my first commercial customer to find the right shop to sell to, and it paid off because I was um, an overnight success because I selected my first customer based on what she said in that book. And Lynn has become a really good friend um, through the years, and I'm just so honored to know her and to call her my friend because she has really um, helped the flower farmers in this I mean, the word got out. Um, and anyway, so when I, I read that book, and oh my goodness. So I just went at it and started planting and figuring out who my customers were going to be. And I will tell you um, that. So I literally planted a fall planted hardy annual garden. I read that book during the summer. And you know how when you read a book and you're pumped, you're ready to go do it now, right? Mm -hmm. Well, it was like August or September or something. And it's like, oh my gosh what am I going to plant? So I kind of went back to the book and she had actually, this was actually the root of where my book, Cool Flowers came from. Um, she, I remembered reading about a couple of flowers that she said that those of us that live in, you know, zone seven, which is what I was then, we've switched over to kind of eight now where I am, but that you could plant snapdragons and dianthus sweet william in the fall 
to winter over as a small plant to be the first bloomers of spring. And I thought, that's what I'm going to do. And I literally launched my flower farming career on what we now call cool flowers um, and was those cool season hardy annuals. And when I took that next May, I guess it was early May, when those flowers that I had planted last fall actually had begun to bloom, um, I also planted sweet peas. And you know, my husband every day would say, are you going to take your flowers down to the flower shop today? And I had so many excuses, but the reality was I was terrified. Um, I mean, I could just, I played it through my head so many times. I would walk in with my flowers and they would look at me and say, why would we want your old garden flowers? Hmm. You, know, you kind of hold that I held those florists, those customers up like, flower experts. But in fact, what I learned is they're design experts. They really don't know a whole lot about the growing flower availability side of things. Anyway, Stevie gave me a great, you know, after several days of me having excuses, he finally said, all right, this is it. You take your flowers down there. And I had to take down there. I had sweet peas, sweet William, and hydrangeas because we, our family homestead came with a bunch of hydrangeas. And he said, take your flowers down there. And if they are not, if they say no, we'll just never shop there again. You don't ever have to go back. (laughs) And, And that gave me confidence, Kathy. It was like the most ridiculous thing. It's like, okay, I could do it. So I did it. It was a huge success. I won't take you down that rabbit hole, but, um, Anyway, it just, I, he really took me under my wing, his wing, and helped me to become more successful because he wanted my flowers, that florist did. And, um, you know, I've written about that journey in both of my books because, I mean, there were a lot of hiccups, mm-hmm. but I got up and did it every single day. And I would think that you know, perseverance, stick to itiveness, yeah. that's a that's a big, big part of your success. And, you know, I'm also I'm not a person that is super persistent. You know, if I I think if Eddie, that was the name of the first florist that I went to, I think if I had not been received so welcomingly and with such open arms and his just encouragement. I don't know if I'd be here today sitting here talking to you. And that really came because, you know, Lynn really outlined that for us in the book of the type of customer to go for. And, you know, it's just doing a little research and um, really paid off for me. And anyway, I just kind of piggybacked on that in a lot of different ways as my career grew. Um, I went on to, so I, my farm, my little urban farm and, you know, farming, real big farm people laugh when they hear this, but, you know, when I first started growing, our property was only 1.17 acres. That's not even one and a quarter acres. And for 10 years, that's all I had. I had two quarter acre gardens on that property and I was still able to produce four to 5,000 stems of flowers a week in season, you know, and I have no hoop or greenhouses. I do everything out in the garden. Um, being in the city has some ordinances that I have to follow. Um, but we were so fortunate about 10 years ago, we were able to buy an adjoining acre and a half. Um, and so our place now is a little less than three acres. And um, that opened a lot of doors. We went into high production. I mean, at the height of my career, we were selling to 23 florists, two supermarket chains, farmers markets, and two on-farm private programs, a members-only market, and a bouquet subscription. Um, It was 10 to 15,000, I say it, and I'm thinking to myself, how did we ever do this? 10 to 15,000 stems of flowers a week for like five months out of the year from outdoor growing, and it was a lot of work, but myself included, and the people that worked with me, which was much of my family, um, nieces and sister, um, as well as others, you know, when you don't consider it work, it's not that it's not hard physical labor, but when you enjoy what you're doing, it's just very different than what people imagine. Um, Mm -hmm. We got hot and we got tired, 
but we still wanted to get up and do it the next day. Nice. And I'm glad you mentioned your, your family that works with you and you had referenced your family homestead. So do you come from a family of gardeners and how did you get personally into gardening? Sure. So um, we live in what is my husband Stevie's family homestead. And um, my parents actually um, were not really gardeners. They had a landscape. They were big azalea and rhododendron growers, not growers, but that's what they had in their landscape. We lived under a big canopy of trees. Um, So I'm pleased to report now that I have knowledge as a gardener. They were growing exactly what you should have grown in the home that I grew up in. You know, they weren't trying to grow full sun stuff in deep shade. And um, so my grandma was a gardener. But what really sparked my interest is um, when I found myself as a single um, adult and I had a home with a mortgage um, and I was the one, only one paying the mortgage, I really couldn't afford to do anything. And that kind of drove me out into my own backyard and I started dabbling. And during that time is when I met Steve. Um, and of course, he was living here on his grandparents' homestead where they had big family vegetable gardens. And I was ve- not only was I very intrigued with him, I was very intrigued with his garden. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so we kind of hit it off. And, you know, as our relationship developed and then we were going to be married, um, that's when I came across Lynn's book, The Flower Farmer. And it just seemed like you know, door after door opened and just ushered me right in. I was a a business manager of a very busy veterinarian hospital for 18 years. Loved my job. Um, Loved the man that I work for. We're still dear friends. And he, interestingly enough, has now become this big gardener and the roles have switched. You know, he comes to me now for help and it's just the sweetest thing. We're like father and daughter, I guess. Um, But anyway, so it's been a really great, um, run and gardening just kind of presented itself. And then I married Steve and we had this great space. I mean, the thing about this homestead is it was composted for about 80 years before I got here. (laughs) It's not hard to farm here, you know? Um, So it's- Wow. That's such a great base to start with. I mean, I- tell the story, I can almost hold up a package of seeds and just show it to the garden soil and stuff sprouts. You know, I mean, that too has just been another part of my success. I didn't have the, you know, I have friends that are farming where there's rocks or heavy, Mm -hmm. heavy clay and just how, I mean, farming in a wonderful environment is laborious. I can't imagine the additional struggles. Um, My hat is off to those people that face those struggles. Yeah, and that put you a little bit ahead that you didn't have to do, you know, several years of work of soil remediation and improvement. So that's right. wonderful. Yeah, it all helped. Mm-hmm. And I have to ask, since you had the flower farm idea around the time that you got married, did you do the flowers for your own wedding? I did not. Um, actually, I was not growing flowers, um, really. I'm just thinking back Um, because I think we got married in March and I think I didn't plant. I planted my first row of zinnias in his vegetable garden that summer um, to take to my grandma's, my grandmother visits on Tuesday. Um, So no, I did not. But I tell you, I really had a hard time finding somebody to work with that had, I wanted a bouquet. I can remember saying to the ladies and they would look at me like I was crazy. I want a bouquet that looks like I just walked outside and picked it and -hmm. I just gathered it up in my hand and I finally found somebody, but no, sadly, I did not grow my own flowers for my wedding. And we got married in March. So that would have been. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and a lot less stress. Yeah. (laughs) Not having to be your own. Yes. Yep. And so it sounds like you were a little bit ahead of your time when you're had that taste for a kind of rustic country bouquet for your wedding and um that you even thought about that this is a great place to to grow flowers in and you also had that business manager background which really probably helped you start off there yeah you know that um i did i learned so much and because you know what 
One of the things I try to communicate in one of our online courses, Flower Farming School Online, what I say to people, you know, flower farming is a huge learning curve and starting a business is an even bigger learning curve. But what happens to most flower farmers is they just ignore the business side because they are so consumed, caught up, infatuated with the flower growing part. The flower growing part, I would say, is less, is a third of the business. I mean, it's important, no question. But without the other two thirds, you're just a gardener that has a lot of flowers. You're not a commercial flower farmer, meaning growing mm-hmm. and selling, being sustainable, being profitable. Um, it's it's a lot and people need help and they don't realize it. They just jump in head first and then they crash and burn, as so many people do. Um, you know, that your family is really eager for you to do this, mm-hmm. but after six months of you're still not, you know, really kind of like coming in anytime close to before dark time and you're still not made any money and you're working yourself to a bone and you don't want to go to the beach anymore. You know, people, families tolerate that behavior while you're trying to get started, but most people never make it out of that overwhelmed stage um, to really make farming part of your life, not rule your life. And it is quite possible to do that. Um, so we lose a lot of great farmers that way because um, it's a it's a big learning curve. It helped me to be a business person first. And I can imagine time management is also a big part of that. Oh boy, that's something I'm getting ready to do a piece on is that you have to I get, I'm sure that people get caught up in the planning. They can't stop planning because they're afraid to take the plunge and you just have to do it because motion gets more motion. You know, once you start, then you just, you're off and running. And um, for me, I live such a structured life. People are like, oh my gosh. I'm like, hey, I'm done by three or four o'clock every day. You know, I have the rest of the day, but I am, I am structured from six o'clock in the morning until about four o'clock. And I'm not saying there's not downtime in there, but I have specific things that I do and it gets things done. And I don't spend, I don't allow myself the time to spend so much time on social media. I do on my own post because it drives my business. Social media to me is not a popularity contest. It is a profitability (laughs) tool that I use. And um, so you do have to be very structured and disciplined. And I am, I guess that's a strong suit for me because I've seen the results of it. Um, I enjoy having lazy time. I can't even imagine you with lazy time. Oh my God. (laughs) So So what do you do on your time off from flower growing? Um, Well, we love living in this place. I mean, Steve and I both, um, we're not real big vacationers or travelers, I guess you would say. First off, we have a a golden retriever. Uh, We have always had, I have always had goldens and um, virtually there's really not anybody other than maybe my sister that would be um, a candidate to keep my dog. Um, So it's often, that's a very, that's a barrier. Um, but Steve and I truly, Steve also owns, um, a fairly large, small business and we both have enjoy our free time, but our free time, if it were up to us would be, as he said, let's just go lay out in the backyard, you know, let's listen to the birds, watch the, um, what's going on and, you know, nothing is more enjoyable to us and, Um, So we really are both big gardeners and it's um, really enjoyable. And he, he has Harleys and he's a woodworker and I participate in those things with him. And all of our family, both sides live within five miles. So we spend a lot of time with our families. I work with my sibling and a niece and a sister-in-law. My husband employs, um, is employed with, him and his brother and his sister and nephews. And, um, you know, it just makes for, I I don't want to say the good life, but it is, you know, we just 
So we we don't have any, our free time is consumed in things that we really enjoy. Family's first with us and um, mm-hmm. we get to partake in it. Nice. And you had mentioned your golden retriever and I was just looking at a, a book you had written called Farm Dog Babs, the sweet brown eyed girl. And I was sorry to hear about Babs's passing. So can you tell me a little bit about Babs and maybe your current uh, dogs? Sure. So Babs, um, she was a sweetie pie. Babs, that whole little picture book came about because Babs had so many antics in our garden. I mean, she dug her own turnips. She picked her own beans. She picked her own tomatoes. And she was just, I mean, she melted people because she's a golden and goldens can be pretty wiggly and they're social butterflies and pretty licky and wiggly. Well, Babs was one of those goldens that when she saw a toddler, she just sat down and waited for them to come to her. I mean, she didn't scare children. When Babs went to the farmer's market with me for years and slept, laid under our checkout table, and she had longer lines to visit with Babs than we did to sell flowers. I mean, that is no joke. And Babs was just a honey. So that little, we had so many amazing images of her um, that we had that little picture book um, published. And so we lost Babs um, about three years ago in a snowstorm in January. I mean, she, classic golden retriever or just retriever, you know, she ate dinner the night before, was out playing ball, and you wake up the next morning and she's not at your bedside. I instantly knew something was wrong. And Mm. we had the classic hemangiosarcoma on her spleen that had ruptured. And um, of course, we didn't know any of this. Anyway, we lost her later that morning. um, And then it really kind of, you know, things happen for a reason. Sometimes my lifelong dear friend, Laurie DeMoe, who is a golden retriever, fancier and actually one of the leading experts on goldens, um, had been fighting cancer for years and she was coming to the end of her road. And out of the blue, um, two months after we lost Babs, the, the call came from Laurie to say, can you take Barry? Barry is, was her eight and a half year old, amazing golden retriever. And I said, of course, we'll take her. I couldn't have taken her. I don't think if Babs had still been with us. Anyway, we had Barry for two years. We lost Laurie during that time, but we lost Barry and Tucker is the current resident golden retriever. I tend to get adult dogs because I'm a busy person. You know, these adult dogs that need to be rescued and um, that you find, um, I think people tend to think that these dogs come with problems that are adult dogs. And in fact, typically their problem was their previous owner. (laughs) They've left them behind Mm -hmm. and they're full of so much goodness. Um, My experience has been that, you know, getting an adult dog after about 30 days, it's as if they were born and raised in your house. And um, so Tucker was a rescue um, and he, he's the first boy I've had in probably 30 years And within a week of us getting him, I was already questioning my judgment of getting him um, because he basically was untrained, two and a half, unneutered, had been living in a crate, and he was just a wild man and took about four months of running him, playing ball constantly. And I will tell you that now, a year later, he is probably going to be one of the best dogs that I've ever owned. He's he's quite a ham on social media. You know, people can connect with us on Facebook or Instagram um, and even YouTube. But Tucker's really on Instagram a lot in my stories and in my posts. Um, so our Goldens are a big part. They were a big part of how I started to investigate and pursue organic gardening all those years ago. Um, was their welfare was the first in my mind. Um, And then once you learn about how to do it and why to do it, you realize you can never go back to using products or any type of chemical intervention um, because we don't even use organic products on our farm. And that's such a great point that, you know, sometimes we make that transition to organic gardening because of our fur babies or because of another externality, but then it's better for all of us in the end. It makes for better gardening, you know. I mean, people don't realize that, you know, the world was made perfect. It can really take care of its own business. But when we tend to grow gardens 
you know, big masses of things that don't always grow together, um, we need to give a little bit of help. And that help is in A, standing back when you find a pest, um, having present flowers present all the time to encourage the types of visitors to gardens that can help with your pest control and, of course, pollination. Um, but my book, Vegetables Love Flowers, is really about the big picture of organic gardening. So many folks are trying to be organic gardeners, yet they still use a hefty amount of organic pesticides, and they're defeating the purpose. I mean, they're, they're eliminating the very ones we're trying to encourage to the garden um, to help with our problems. We're trying to give Mother Nature a hand not interfere. I mean, she can do the strong lifting without us. Um, we have not used any type of pesticide on this farm, oh my goodness, 15 years or something. And perhaps one of the things we're most known for is the perfection of our blooms. It's just not necessary. And we've pretty much proven that. Um, but you have to give mother nature a little help. And that's what we I really talk about in that book. And it's really pretty simple. And it's far less complicated, far less expensive. Um, and it's a whole lot more fun. <laughs> mm -hmm. And it's so much more beautiful too. <laughs> exactly. I mean, there's just really no downside to it, you know? Um, so yeah, I totally agree. And your other book, Cool Flowers, I love that title because it can be read as cool as in the fawns yes. <laughs> flowers which they are but also cool season flowers and so you're talking about the shoulder seasons in the mid-atlantic of early spring and fall and having cut flowers during those seasons not just your typical annual summer flowers so uh where are you in the cool flower season right now in mid-april Sure. That's a great question. Um, so we're on the verge. I actually saw a snapdragon bloom earlier when I was out in the garden doing a little work. Um, we would, yeah, we don't have them this year, but normally blooming right now at this time of the year would be Iceland poppies, calendula, the bachelor buttons are starting. Um, so we're on the verge of major outbreak of beautifulness. <laughs> Um, and our bells of Ireland look great. Our sweet peas would be blooming probably in about another two to three weeks. Um, so the, the real twist on this group of flowers is that those of us that live where we have hot, humid, long summers have been told um, that we can't grow a lot of these flowers, like bells of Ireland, the most coveted flower. I mean, you say Bells of Ireland and everybody instantly goes, oh man, I want to grow those. Um, but the secret is they're cool season hardy annuals. Um, we fall plant them. You don't have time to get them planted and get them up and established here in our region um, and south um, before the heat and the, um, starts really ravaging them and creating pest and disease issues. I mean, we grow killer bells of Ireland and sweet peas. We grow sweet peas like weeds. The secret is you just have to plant them um, when it is for your region. And the book really helps you to understand the concept and then to help you to figure out when you plant them. If it is winter hardy in your zone, you should fall plant. You get blooms earlier. Um, you get more abundance. They're more disease and pest resistant. Um, and they're just easier to take care of. Think about them spending all winter um, freezing. They're like little frozen popsicles, but their roots are really getting established. It rains and snows more often. They are literally not much work at all. Um, you don't have to irrigate them. And, um, you know, we've been doing it for 20 some years. And I mean, it's, it's, we used to call it before I wrote Cool Book Flowers, I, my, the name of my um, lecture that I would talk about this group was the Lazy Gardeners Spring Garden. Hmm. Be, I mean, because once you get it down and figure out, oh gosh, I fall plant this stuff, you water it when you plant it, but then it rains and snows and it's cold outside so it doesn't dry out. And literally all of a sudden in spring, it's like, oh my gosh, look, I totally forgot. You know, I mean, it's it's kind of like planting bulbs, you know, it's like that pleasant surprise. You almost forget that you did it, but anyway, it's an awesome group. Mm -hmm. And the term hardy annuals. So that's referring to the set that would be winter hardy, 
but once you've um, harvested the crop in springtime, then you're switching over to a summer annual, correct? So yeah, what we do is we basically have a three season cutting garden. And so in our spring blooms are the cool season hardy annuals. And that would typically be April, May, and much of June. And literally because they're so well established, um, and if you stay on top of harvesting them, we can still have some cool flowers in July. Literally, we can still have bachelor buttons in July if we stay hard, stay on top of them. But what I have learned from our customers, um, people really naturally seem to crave seasonally. And so they love the, the spring, you know, and we have peonies, which of course are perennials. Um, they crave the those spring flowers, the sweet peas and the bells of Ireland and the snapdragons. But as soon as the zinnias and the coxcomb and the sunflowers start revving up in late June, well, we actually start cutting those at the end of May, but we really get into abundance in June. They're kind of done with the spring stuff. So you can extend cool flowers under certain conditions into summer a little bit longer, but we have found it's just not necessary. Um, So what happens is we have, you know, you have two plantinaries, a cool season and a warm season, and it just sets you up for a really simple succession planting um, of going between the annuals. And that means that you have nonstop flowers from early spring right up till frost. And when one of those beds or those areas are going out of season, do you plant a cover crop or how do you treat that soil? Sure. sure. So good question. Um, So we're big succession planters, particularly of warm season tender annuals. Those are all the summer, you know, the zinnias and coxcomb and all that and sunnies. Um, So if I had two gardens or two three by 10 foot beds, which I do not recommend a home gardener have anything larger than a three by 10. And to have two of those really sets you up to be perfect. So your one bed is planted in cool season, hardy annuals. You're cutting them, enjoying them in spring. During that time, you're planting your warm season, um, tender annuals, your first zinnias and um, basil and all those things that you're going to make just delightful bouquets out of. Um, when the cool flowers finally fizzle out, um, you can do one of two things, one of many different things, actually. You can, we would pull those crops out. We always put a couple inches of compost down and dry organic general purpose fertilizer. And you can, because we have such a long growing season, we in fact plant a second succession of warm season tender annuals. Um, Maybe thinking, okay, these will be coming on really strong late summer, early fall. Let's change the colors up a little bit. Let's get some fall colors going, maybe some chocolate sunflowers instead of the, you know, the whites and the yellows. Um, And then when you fill that second bed up with that second succession of warm season tender annuals, when that first planting really starts to peter out in late summer, early fall, that's when you pull them out and put your cool season hardy annual garden that's going to bloom um, the following spring. You can actually get cool flowers to bloom in the fall, but as I tell people, that's kind of like graduate work. Um, you wouldn't attempt to do that starting your own seeds um, hmm. until you've got a little bit of experience under your belt. And so the growing of the flowers is just part of the work, as we talked about before. Uh, There's also knowing when to cut them and how to treat them. Do you talk about that in your Cool Flowers book? I do. I actually, in both of the books, have harvest information. Um, And because you're so right that the stage of harvest is key to how long the flowers last um, and then what to do with them. And, um, you know, naturally garden flowers, when they're harvested at the proper stage, and you have to know it for each individual flower, and that information is included um, in both books at what stage they should be cut in. Um, For instance, like snapdragons, you really cut them just when the very first bottom flower opens on the stalk. Because what happens is bumblebees are huge fans of snapdragons. And if a bumblebee crawls into that flower and pollinates it, 
that flower is going to prematurely fall off. So we try to harvest them um, when only one flower is open so that the bumblebee, there's plenty of flowers for the bumblebees, um, but the ones we're cutting, we want to get them inside before any of the flowers get pollinated. And they continue to open um, very quickly, actually, even indoors. Unlike the zinnia, that the minute you cut it, it develops no more. So you really kind of have to know a little bit about the particular flowers that you're growing. And it gets pretty easy because reality is that we don't grow, you know, hundreds of different types of flowers. You know, we probably grow less than 50 types of flowers, lots of different colors, lots of um, variety of the colors, but you kind of learn what your flowers need. And when you do, they really last a long time. And so we've talked a, a bit about annual growing and you referred to a, a couple perennials that you grow, hydrangeas and peonies. Are there other perennials that you grow? Um, we actually can perennialize dahlias and tuberoses here. Not everybody can. Um, if you're in 8A or the lower south of 7B um, winter hardiness zones, you can winter them over if you give them good drainage. Um, because I have limited space on our farm, um, for the biggest bang for your commercial business buck, definitely annuals are, they pump out a lot more blooms over a longer period of time. So we have a very limited um, number of perennials and we do grow peonies um, and peonies tend to be and Linton roses, hellebores. Um, both of those are very high valued crops um, commercially. I mean, we get a high dollar per stem and, but they take up real estate year round. So that keeps me personally from growing a lot of perennials, but there are a lot of excellent perennials, um, bulbs and shrubs to grow. We have tons of hydrangeas, um, just thinking. We, um, we have a, a native mixed border that's about 900 feet that encompasses our farm trying to establish, help our organic home-based workers in native insects. Um, and there's some shrubs in there that we cut on, but in general, I'm pretty much an annual grower. Um, and that's just because that's what works best for my business. Since you're in an urban location and close by your neighbors, do you have a lot of reaction or interaction with your neighbors about your cut flower farm? Sure. So we get so funny. You should say that somebody just sent me a question, a flower farmer, an urban flower farmer that all of our neighbors want to come over. That is the biggest, um, you know, people, when you are a flower farmer, a business, I mean, I work all day in my garden, um, just like you go to work or a nurse goes to work or, you know, and there's certain tasks that have to be done at a certain time and you're trying to beat the heat always. And so you try to be very kind and, um, you know, hospitable to your neighbors. But in the beginning, I really had to be kind of like, um, I, you don't make, I would not make eye contact with people walking by mm -hmm. in cars because I mean, the minute, one of the, so funny in the interview, when I was interviewing folks that would help us, I said, and you do not make eye contact with cars driving by. And they <laughs> said, well, why? And I said, because the minute you stand up and look, they're going to wave, then they're going to roll down their window and you're not going to be able to hear them. And then you have to walk across the field to the fence. It's just, I know, I mean, I've done it a hundred times. And um, so we do have great relationships. Our neighbors so appreciate, I am the last farmer in our community. Um, and not to mention a flower farmer. And so, so my fields are a little um, different looking than a vegetable farmer's would be. But so our neighbors um, are very um, happy about what we're doing and um, we're very legal, but they're still not, you know, we're very aware that we have neighbors. I don't start equipment before 8 a.m. in the morning out of, you know, just honoring and respecting our neighbors. Um, where my farm, farming friends are out at 6 a.m., you know, firing up the tractors. Um, we just don't do it out of um, trying to just be a good neighbor. And, you know, I, our farm is pretty neat. It actually helps me to keep a prettier farm. Um, I mean, I have weed-eating people that come and weed-eat. We have a ton of, all three acres is 
fenced for our dogs. And um, so we have a lot of fence to weed eat. And keeping the edges neat really makes our neighbors very, very happy. That's a great tip. And I can so relate to the passing car syndrome. And uh, I have tons of passing pedestrians uh, being near two different metro stations here on the on the D.C. border that everybody wants to stop and talk, but it, it does eat up your day. Yeah, you just have to really look really hot and really <laughs> tired. And they tend to understand, you know, I tend, my best move was um, I wouldn't leave my position. I'd yell, you know, it's like, hi, you know, they'd say hi. I'd say, oh, hey, how are you? Or don't say, how are you? Um, I used to have phrases I would say that do not encourage more interaction. It's terrible, <laughs> but it's true. I mean, it's like my family, um, our family, because I mean, both our, our parents, our siblings, they all know that harvest day is Monday and Thursday. And we don't accept visitors on those days. I mean, the minute we get up and start harvesting, I mean, think about thousands of stems of flowers have to be cut. We are cutting from the first ray of sunlight to get finished because we're trying to get out of there before the heat really gets started at one o'clock in the afternoon. And um, it may not feel like 15 minutes chit-chatting at the fence makes a difference. You just can't believe what a difference it makes to morale too. But Mm -hmm. yeah, so it's, it's challenging, but we've really worked it out and we love our neighbors and our neighbors love us. And, um, you know, you just have to do PR, you know, Mm -hmm. just do the job. And speaking of challenges, uh, has there been an annual flower that you attempted that you were just like, this is not going to work for our climate and or and or not going to work for the florist? One of my rules from the beginning, because remember, I'm that rule follower. I read it in Lynn's book was about there are certainly cut flower variety of flowers. And then there's other, it's just like, you know, how there's different um varieties of a crepe myrtle, let's just say, for instance, some are more mildew resistant than others. So some are better suited to certain regions. Well, it's the very same thing with cut with flowers. There are some zinnias that may look like the same flower zinnia that I grow, but they don't have the same characteristics, whether it's their stems are too short or they're, they're very predisposed to mildew and different things. Um, after reading her book, and I, me having such limited space, I knew that I was, and I wasn't really interested in experimenting. I know that some people really want to dabble in that. That's not me. Um, I have, I don't think I have ever grown in my commercial garden anything that I did not know for 100% that it was a proven cut flower. And, you know, that's just one of my little structured rules that I've always followed. And, yeah, you know, that I grew um, status for, I tried to grow status for several years, but guess what, Kathy, can you even believe this? I was growing it like a tender, warm season annual. Did you know status is a Hmm. cool season, hardy annual? Mm -hmm. We fall plant that stuff here and we get like 40 inch stems. I would plant that in early spring, like right now, and wonder why it would only get 10 inches tall. So it's just, that's not a piece of information that is real widely available. People don't talk about annuals in that way, cool season, hardy annual or warm season tender. Um, And then we should, because it totally triggers when they should be planted. Um, And it's unique for every region. That's what's so great about local gardening sources and local gardening knowledge and wisdom like yours to be shared. And I was just looking at the Gardener's Workshop um, shop on your website, and you have seeds that you sell that are in collections already of warm season and cool season, which is a great resource to be able to look through there and look at those collections and know that. Yeah, we tried to make it, you know, I did not set out in 2005 is when we launched the online garden shop. And part of that was to sell the tools and supplies that I was using that people just couldn't readily find out and available. And I had no intention of packaging seeds, but there was so much information that was 
key to me being successful in gardening and starting seeds and when to plant them that's left off of seed packages. I was really quite surprised. And so that's what led us to packaging. We don't grow and save seed. We buy seeds from hybridizers and seed houses and then package them into our packaging with our, my instructions on them. Um, And we feel like that is really a very important piece of information. What kind of annual is it? And, you know, do you cover the seed with soil or not when you're starting it? Is that not like a key piece of information? You can't believe the seed packets that don't include that piece of information. It's it's befuddling to me, but mm-hmm. um, that's what kind of led us down that pathway because we really want people to succeed and they just need a few simple pieces of information to really make that happen. That's so great to know. And yeah, complete starter information, even if you think that you know it, I kind of liken it to uh, the baking mix box. (laughs) You you have to tell people to take the plastic out and cut it open like it you have to tell them step by step for the first time if they've never done it before they don't know the difference between you know direct sowing by scattering the seed on the surface or uh starting the seed indoor what the depth would be and that there's a difference uh in both situations even with the same seed that you're starting and i think that as a speaker and a writer We feel compelled, or at least I did back in the beginning till I figured this out, um, compelled to have some spectacular piece of information to to share, something they've never heard before or some, do you know what I mean? You had to like have the, Mm -hmm. I mean, I used to feel that way every spring when when I would be contacting my floral customers. I felt like I needed a new flower each year, but the the bottom line was those florists were looking forward to the same old flowers that I sold them every week last year. They just wanted more of them. But I found that in my speaking um, that went on for my writing as well, 99% of the people just want the clear, basic instruction. And that's what I built my career and my business on. And Um, I no longer feel compelled. I mean, when I can still remember, I mean, having people come to you that say, you know, I did everything you told me and I'll say you did. Let's all right. Let's go through the steps talking about soul blocking or whatever. Let's go through the steps. Tell me exactly what you did. I can remember being on the phone with this one lady. She was actually a physician and she went through the steps and her seeds didn't sprout. And I listen to everything. That's the number one thing you got to be as a good listener, which is not easy for me, but I have learned in this business to be a good listener. And she went through everything and I said, but did you water them? She said, I was supposed to water them. Oh, I mean, we're talking like seven days of on a seedling heat mat. <laughs> and that just made me realize that the automatic answers that are in our brains of those of us that are doing it, you have to share that information. Um, And, you know, I mean, it just makes, as far as running a business, it makes it really simple. I could talk about the same things every day and there's still just millions of people that haven't heard it yet. And it's just basic information. So I try to really you know, some people I think are very um, insulting when they say things like dumb it down or dummy one oh, you know, computers for dummies or something. That is just so not true. Um, I'm sure anybody that thinks they know everything about something has something that they need help with. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I just really take people at face value and try to share the steps of doing it and showing them. That's the other big part of us is you know, I go live constantly. It feels like I bet I do 15 lives a week. Um, and it's showing people how to do it, you know? And that's so true that nobody was born knowing everything. Yeah. <laughs> we all started from a certain point. And yeah, I never liked the four dummies moniker to things. Me either. <laughs> I just felt like that was so insulting. Mm-hmm. Somebody said to me, oh, you should do a, a flower farming webinar for dummies. And 
I just wanted to say we're all dummies when it comes to that. I mean, <laughs> let's get real. And so anyway, I just feel like encouraging and serving people and helping them is far more beneficial to everybody involved. Um, nothing is better than me say, you know, sharing my biggest failures and to have people say, because I'm telling you that most people, most people that purchase seeds do not have success. And mm. when I share with people that you are a member of the majority of the world, do you know how many um, commercial growers and hort people that I would speak and they'd be at, and we, you know, seed starting was one of my most popular talks. And they come up and say, now I understand why I never got a seed to sprout. Cause it's like this bad little secret they have. And you know, it's like, it's because they're missing information. It's not on the seed packets. It's, you know, it's just not out there. And so I've basically become the seed starting counselor, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's, it's really a wonderful opportunity for those of us that are doing something to share the most basic information and the people that know the basic information will leave and not listen to you talk about that, but they'll be back when you talk about something else. Mm -hmm. And I love yeah. that seed starting counselor that that should be your other title <laughs> <laughs> that, that you don't have a, enough on your plate already. Yeah, so, yeah. For our, so for our podcast listeners, how can they connect with you to take your online webinars, to order from the Gardener's Workshop and to follow you on social media? Sure. So um, the our website, thegardenersworkshop.com is a clearinghouse of, um, you can, at the bottom of each page is my direct link to my Facebook page and Instagram and YouTube. Um, we do have a channel and I am now also doing lives on YouTube. Um, and I do lives on Instagram and on Facebook. Saturday mornings is a great time, 11 to 12 Eastern time. Um, it's live from the farm and I start sunflowers every week. Um, and just share whatever is going on here. Um, and my podcast is on any podcast app. Um, it's, we've only been in for two months and we've already had 20,000 downloads. So it's going really well. And it's called Field and Garden because I just really wanted people to understand that I'm a field farmer. And what that means is that I'm just gardening out in a big giant garden. And so a home gardener can totally relate about everything that we um, talk about. And you can also find my books at any, at any booksellers everywhere, but we also have them on my website. I would love to sign one for you. Our online courses are there. Um, many of our courses are actually big schools and they only have enrollment that opens once a year and you can get on wait lists over on thegardenersworkshop.com. Um, what else? Um, so really the gardeners, and if you sign up for our newsletter, um, we send out a weekly TGW news these days, and it really kind of highlights different areas, the, the latest podcast, and we send out a chilling video. And oftentimes it's me and Tucker doing something fun. Um, <laughs> you know, people just love, I know I love looking at videos that make me smile or relax. And anyway, so we have a lot of fun stuff. It all starts at thegardenersworkshop.com. Great. Thank you so much, Lisa. And we'll put a link to that podcast uh, in our podcast notes so people can check that out and follow you as well. And I just want to say happy gardening for the springtime and the rest of this growing season. And any final thoughts for our listeners? It seems to me that seed starting appears to be a natural desire that most everybody has. It's just that a lot of us have really thrown in the towel. You know, we've just not had success. And I want to say that you're a member of the majority and it doesn't have to be that way and would love for you to, um, you know, happy to help. I do Q&As on many of my lives and we're happy to answer your questions and connect because usually it's just one little hiccup that you're not doing because the miracle of a seed is pretty amazing and it will sweep you off your feet. Um, you might even turn into like 
a farmer like me because you can't <laughs> stop. <laughs> um, so I just love sharing that you really can do the seed starting thing. You just need some good information to do it. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Lisa. Thank you. Wild Violet Plant Profile Wild Violets, viola species, are a sweet little wildflower with heart-shaped foliage and tiny purple flowers. There is also the closely related Confederate Violet, which has white flowers with purple streaks. A lawn of white violets can be a lovely sight in early spring, though some consider this dainty flower to be more of a weed than a welcome garden plant. However, they are native wildflower that is the host plant for several kinds of fritillary butterflies and can have a place in your home landscape. They make a nice ground cover in a woodland garden and can be grown easily in a container. They need virtually no care except to cut the ground level brown flowers back to prevent seeding if you do not want them to reproduce by self-sowing. They also expand in clumps through underground rhizomes. While violets are edible and are a favorite of foragers, you can eat both the flowers and foliage. A purple syrup can be made from the flowers to flavor a cocktail and add a fun coloring to baked goods. Wild violets, you can grow that. What's new in the garden this week? I don't know about you, but it's that time of year where you feel like everything is blooming at the same time and you just can't keep up with all the garden tasks that you have to do, but it's great to be out there in the garden. I've been able to cut several bouquets and those include the double daffodils that are just starting to bloom now, some early red tulips, the first of my lilac shrubs, and I am so enjoying seeing my Lily of the Valley pop up, Epimediums come into bloom, and those adorable little fiddleheads on the ferns are making the tiniest little displays around the base of my gazebo. They're one of the cutest things, I think, in the garden world. Over at the community garden plot, our fava beans are putting on tremendous amount of growth the garlic has doubled in size since last week. I'm able to harvest some lettuce, some broccoli heads, and some asparagus. In the local gardening world, lots of events are coming up both virtually and in person. So as mentioned before, we'll be at the Leesburg Flower and Garden Festival for the weekend of April 17th and 18th. And that will be actually live and in person. Yay! <laughs> so uh, virtually happening are a bunch of great talks I wanted to let you know about. One is a food justice and urban agriculture in the district panel. That's being hosted by the D.C. State Fair Monday, April 26th at 7 p.m. And you can sign up for that for free through Eventbrite. Um, another great talk that you might want to check out is Encouraging Plant Health, and that's being hosted by the Potomac Rose Society on Sunday, April 18th at 2 p.m. And you can just go to potomacrose.org and get the link and sign up for that. Uh, the speaker is Dr. Holly Walker, a past uh, guest on this podcast, and she's a plant health specialist with the Smithsonian Gardens, and she's going to talk about strategies for keeping your roses and garden healthy, which sounds like a great topic. And one more online workshop that I wanted to bring to your attention on April 19th, the National Capital Orchid Society is hosting help my orchids have bugs <laughs> and that seems to be a common issue with a lot of orchid growers so i thought that would be a great one to highlight 
And you can go to the NCOS Facebook page and get the link for that. And that is free and open for anybody to uh, join in. And one last in-person event that I wanted to give you a heads up on. The Historic Garden Week in Virginia is letting us know that tickets are close to selling out. So you want to sign up for that really quickly. And that's the week of April 17th to the 24th. And the website for that is vagardenweek.org. Happy gardening! Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter by going to anchor.fm backslash Kathy gents backslash support. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can become a listener supporter and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. Another way to support Garden DC is to go to washingtongardener.com and subscribe to Washington Gardener Magazine. You can find Washington Gardener online at washingtongardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.